You're listening to After the Encore, the music podcast that explores what happens after the music fades, what happens after the encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and on today's special B-Sides single track edition of the podcast, I speak to Jarrett Reddick, lead singer of the pop punk band Bowling for Soup. I'm super excited. I've been trying to get Jarrett on the podcast for a while. Originally thought about getting him on Detox several years ago, my Culture and Conversation podcast, but then when After the Encore started, I knew Jarrett had to be one of the people I talked to because Bowling for Soup and the entire pop punk genre was so formative in my existence. I moved from the boy band era straight into the pop punk era and I was hooked. I absolutely loved it. First time I heard Girl, All the Bad Guys Want, I knew I was in love with the band. It was fantastic. So Jarrett and I dig into that. We get into his career retrospective, which I was super excited that he was able to make time for. So we're going to dig into that. And the fact that he's locally based here in Dallas-Fort Worth is also exciting. We get to talk through that whole music scene, the Denton music scene. There's a tie back into Volume 1 guest Todd Pipes and Deep Blue Something. And it's just, it's a really great story. Jarrett is a fantastic guy. And Bowling for Soup was one of the groups that was a grinding group. They hustled. There was a really grassroots movement that led them to where they are today. And it's a unique story about how a radio executive putting a single in a certain spot at a certain time is what skyrocketed them to fame. It's absolutely fantastic. The whole story is great. So stick around. We'll be right back with Jarrett after this. You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and I am here with the guy all the bad girls want, Mr. Jarrett Reddick. Jarrett, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great, and your listeners should know that you're the most patient man in the history of <laughs> scheduling guests that has ever lived. I think I've moved this on you three or four times, and one time was like 10 minutes before we were supposed to start. <laughs> no, it's all uh, good. <laughs> and so I will I will say uh, I am I am happy to be here, and uh, I do appreciate your patience, man. Of course. I'm really excited because, you know, as we were chatting a little bit beforehand, you've been on my recording bucket list as one of the people I've wanted to talk to and record to. And I think some of it is is area bias in that because Bowling for Soup is local to Dallas-Fort Worth, they were one of my top favorite bands growing up, and I was all into the punk scene. I'm even wearing a shirt right now. It's got a bunch of different stuff, but one of the things is listen to punk. And so sure. it was super formative for me in those kind of early to mid-aught period of time. And so I'm I'm eager and excited to kind of dig into this. But one of the things I like to do to kick off the show, really set the tone, is ask the question of what does music mean to you? Um, it's sort of an ever-changing thing. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I guess basically if you asked me in stages throughout my life, my answer would be different. Um, but really what it means to me now is togetherness. Uh, music to me is something that brings people together it's something that people can share in and despite your um politics or your or your or your culture or your background or you know your race or whatever despite any and all of that you know it's fun how we all find common ground you know with other people who are unlike us right uh through music and um you know and i think that's why you see so many musicians and, and things, you know, speaking and being active in, in all of those areas that I just mentioned, sure. mentioned because, 
you know, quite frankly, it, you know, it, it is, it's nice to bring people together. And so to me, that's, that's really what it is. I, I, I also have a amazing fan base. Kerrang! Magazine actually just named the Bowling Pursuit fan base in the top 10 fan bases of all time. I believe it. Uh, which is huge. And that's testament to, to the fans, but they are so tight knit and such an insanely tight knit group and just loyal. And, uh, and, and again, they're there for one another. Right. So togetherness would be my long winded answer. I love that though. Cause you talk about the togetherness and the communal aspect of music and something that I consistently think about is whenever, especially when you're around folks of the same age group as yourself, you find that when you start throwing out references like Bowling for Soup, Good Charlotte, Simple Plan, people are like, oh yes, I was here in this moment when that song yep. played and this is what it meant to me. I mean, I still think yeah. I still think about uh, a boxcar racer song that an ex-girlfriend said was what I did to her um, as we were like skating around a roller rink and so like you know that's the weird like <laughs> deep no, cut no, but... <laughs> that's a funny thing about what music does man yeah it, it it is and 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 to to younger people out there i mean i'm 48 years old and so i've got a long history of this but right. there are songs that i mean uh, there's a there's songs by faith no more that take me back to senior year high school sure. and i can smell the smell and mm, feel mm -hmm. the warm air with my truck windows down as i'm driving over to this girl's house while she's nannying so we can go swim in the pool and right you know like I, I there it's just crazy how many songs there are like that and it doesn't go away just right you know it's just and there was nothing spectacular about that day that that music makes me feel right like that it's just it's just that moment for some reason and there's just i have thousands of them where you yeah. know i remember when i heard this for the first time or just this specific, you know, meal that I was at and something came on the radio or, you know, whatever. Um, but it's amazing how, um, you know, something audible can make all of your other senses just go crazy. Yes. A hundred percent. Again. And, 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 and really with no, uh, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, you were listening to the song and somebody shot you, you know, right. again, no, I was yeah. driving down the street. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Cause I would remember that, right? You know, if 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 you, if I, oh man, that's the song that was playing when the right. guy shot me. Right. You know, I, that would one hundred percent. Yeah, you know, I, I would understand that. Right, but it's something. It's something so. Um, it triggers such a sense memory recall. You know, I had an undergrad yeah. degree in theater and so all about sense memory recall. And I could think about things that made me feel a certain way, but nothing nothing brought back memories, positive, negative, or otherwise, just mm. like a song I used to listen to all the time. And yeah. it it places me back. I was um I had Nate Cole from the old Christian boy band plus one on a while ago when I was talking about, I went on a, a trip to India with my dad when I was 15 and I was allowed to bring two CDs cause I had a case for one and one fit into my laptop and Creed and plus one were the only two CDs I had handy and I took them with me. And so like, it wasn't a particular thing where I was drawn to those. I just had them. And now anytime I hear anything yeah. from those two albums, I feel like I'm at the Taj Mahal again. It's so weird. Mm. Yeah. these sense memories, but I love it. And it's, it's so interesting. I heard someone talk about art in the fact that they said, you know, different aspects of art, whether performance art, visual art, music, etc., um, 
has its own specific creative place and purpose. However, they said, when you think about these different pieces of art, what is accompanying all of them? It's music. You've mm. got like a musical in a play or you've got a soundtrack in a movie. Mm. Um, people are playing music as you're walking through an art gallery. You know, you've got the live accompaniment. I mean, you've got all these different things because it's setting the tone and the mood for how you're going to interact with the art. And I think that's so profoundly powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's uh, there's something about that to me. I There's uh, something about audibility Hmm. you know, audible things that, that, that to me are, and, and, you know, maybe that's, maybe this, that's why I do what I do, but, um, it's different than smell or taste or yes. touch, you know, it's, uh, it's just, or sight, whatever it's, right. it's, it's just different. I love that. Well, let's wind, now that we've kind of set the, set the tempo, set the mood for the interview, I'd love to, let's wind the clock back a bit. Um, Not, not quite to 1985, a little bit before that. And I have to, I have to always get these puns in and then that's it. I do like one to two and then I'm done. So don't worry. That's fine. Totally understand. You do you. This is your show. Um, I appreciate that. So let's wind the clock back. And you're originally from Wichita Falls, Texas, right? Before relocating to Denton, or is that not quite That's right. right? Yeah. Okay. No, I was uh, I was born in Grapevine. Oh, right um, on. Go Mustangs. I, I, yeah, I spent uh, first three. I, I lived in, lived there for just a few months, and then uh, first three years of my life in Duncan, Oklahoma, and then my parents moved to Wichita Falls, and that's where I was until the band moved to Denton, Texas. Right on. So your household growing up, was it, or how was it from a musical standpoint? Was it something where your family or your extended family were very musical and they imprinted that on you? Or was it something you sought out on your own? How did that, those early formative moments start? Cause you started playing guitar, what, 12, 13, somewhere in there? No, I started playing drums first. Um, drums. No, okay. I, I, uh, my parents just sang all the time. You know, gotcha. I, I tell this, I say it like this, that scene in Vacation where they've just, in National Lampoon's Vacation, where they're going around that corner and the mom and the dad are just singing their hearts out and the kids are in the back seat rolling their eyes and right. put their headphones on or whatever. I mean, that was me and my brother, but it was prior to Walkman's being a thing. So <laughs> that was our entertainment was listening to them sing. Right. And what what that exposed me to was a lot of a lot of different kinds of music that really influenced who I am as a writer, um, Waylon mm. and Willie, Kenny Rogers, uh, storytellers. And, and I like to think of Bowling for Soup as a storytelling punk rock band. I mean, it, it, and that's the way yep. that I write. That's the way that I talk. And all of that is from them, from those things. But they listened to Neil Diamond and the Eagles, who I credit for, for being able to literally harmonize with anything that I want. Dude. And, yeah. Um, and, you know, I, so I was never educated in the world of, of that kind of thing, you, uh, you know, how to, how to harmonize or, or uh, any sort of, you know, musical training other than just whenever I started playing drums. But um, my brother also listened to a lot of music and uh, he's five years older than me. So whatever he liked at the time is what I liked. So if he was going through his country phase, I listened to country. If he was going through his, uh, you know, Sammy Hagar phase and uh then I listened to that and um you know he he's kind of instrumental also in me really you know su- su- you know uh you know building that foundation in heavy metal too because I, sure. he had a Judas Priest and an Iron Maiden okay. record that just blew my mind yeah um you know that was the way the household was my mom actually played piano by ear 
and she would play church hymns okay um loudly uh, <laughs> in the house while i was trying to sleep on weekends and uh she could also sing really well but yeah. but i wouldn't say that they were musical i mean they you know it wasn't such a part of their lives where i sure. would say my parents were musicians they right, just right. liked music and there was music playing in the car and we spent a lot of time in the car sure. with the kids um but you know the uh, so music to me was was whatever my parents and my brother listened to until i got to be oh i'd say you know fifth sixth grade you start to kind of listen to what your what your friends are listening to true yeah so it was kind of whatever was on the radio, but then, you know, Michael Jackson Thriller came out, oh, John yeah. Cougar, uh, the Mellencamp, album yeah. that um, had uh, Jack and Diane on it, yes. Jay Giles Band, uh, that huge record came out with uh, Freeze Frame and Centerfold, and so <laughs> yeah. um, it, was a, it was a lot of that kind of thing, uh, until one day in the sixth grade, um, uh, and this is a this is a 100% true story. And it's, you, you want to talk about how that, how audible things you can just remember. I remember this, like, I, I mean, I could literally walk it through. I could, I, I was an acting kid by the way, too. And I could literally nice. direct this scene and make it play out exactly the way. But we basically had a uh, math class where every Friday you took a speed test and on your mm. multiplication if you got this if you got a hundred on it and you did it within the allotted time you got the rest of the class free time oh nice so you went to the back of the room and you could play a board game or you could listen to your walkman or you could do whatever you wanted to do you know not a lot to do back in those days right. you didn't have iphones and stuff right. this is probably 1982 83 sure um maybe 84 uh it's now it's not quite 84 it has to be 82 and um, anyway, this kid named Greg Norman, who was one of my best friends, who his room was covered with Kiss posters and, you know, Ozzy Osbourne and, and things like that. And his brother was, his room was covered in Rush posters and he had a drum set in his room and Greg had a guitar. And Greg had brought his Walkman to school. And the funny thing about saying this now is this story meant something completely different 20 years ago, and you're sure. going to pick up on it right when I say it. But he played me the song Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne. Hmm. And up until this point, Ozzy was the devil. Like right. people, you know, I mean, people burned his stuff, and he had been, oh, yeah. he couldn't come to Texas anymore because he peed on the Alamo right. and all of that. And like, so I was terrified of this guy. Sure. And again, the irony here is that that being terrified of him back then, now he's, you know, Ozzy's an actor in 1985 right. in the song, yeah. I say. But my children sing Crazy Train because the freaking trolls sing Crazy Train in the, in right. the movie. Right, yes. It, you know, it's on Same. TV commercials. It plays at every sporting event. You know? <laughs> my kids and, were singing it, and I was like, wait, where did you hear this? I mean, yeah. it's awesome. And they were like, trolls, world tour. And I'm yeah. like, oh, right. oh okay. <laughs> And, and here's so here it is. I, so this was this point of my life where I'm hearing it for the first time, and it became the thing that you're that people were hiding from their parents. Luckily, mm -hmm. my parents um, they never censored me. We had cable. I could listen to whatever I wanted. I watched rated R movies when I was sick. Like whatever. It it, it just was never a thing. I think it was sort of out of sight, out of mind. I don't think it was a conscious decision. I think sure. it was just like as long as I stayed out of trouble, they didn't care. Right. But I heard that song that day, 
that same day I went over to his house and again looked into his brother's room and saw the drum set and that day I went and I got uh, a Motley Crue, I got Motley Crue, um, the uh, Shout at the Devil record, and I got uh, Blizzard of Oz by Ozzy Osbourne, and I asked for a drum set, and literally every single focus in my life changed that particular day. I love that. That is and, fantastic. Uh, that was it. So yeah, I, I, I did end up getting a drum set. My dad actually laughed when I asked for it. And of course, you know, I'm a kid, so I like fake cried and went to my room of course <laughs> uh but you know then i just couldn't get enough i could not get enough motley crew then rat rat came out and mm. then you know autograph and death yes. leopard and um you know so um also mtv had had come into play and so now these songs were popular in this other subculture so right. you know it wasn't it wasn't the same thing that the lionel richie kids were listening to but there was this group of friends who were listening to this stuff and um, that was sort of my introduction also into the, as I was growing up, music was also a click back then. You, you only listen to this certain kind of music and you, if, if you listen to anything outside of that, you didn't tell anybody. You right. know? And your friends all listened to the exact same thing you did. And then this group of friends over here listening, listened to REM, you know, and then that group over there listened to George Strait. And um so yeah, I mean, again, I, I, that's a long-winded answer, and so I mean, I keep going, but that's that's the start of it all, right? Where where it came from with my parents, and when I decided that I wanted to play music. You know, it's so interesting you talk about Crazy Train because I, I still remember the first time I heard it, and so my interactions with Ozzy Osbourne were as follows. So I was born in '87, and so my interactions were my parents thought, well, he used to be the devil, but now he seems really docile on MTV, yeah. so maybe he's yeah, fine. Exactly. And so I'd never heard his music, and the first time I I listened to Crazy Train, it swept me up in this like wave of music with an opening mm. chord, and I was yeah. like, oh my god, this is. This is otherworldly in a fantastic way, and I need more of yeah. this, more of this sound in my life. There was just that all aboard thing and the yes. laugh, yes, and then just that freaking riff, and yes. then the vibra slap that happened, yes. I, there was just something about it, and then just the way that his vocals sounded didn't sound like anything else. I mean, mm -mm. you know, I would later learn, okay, that's because his double is turned up really, sure. really loud. And he, right. so he's, everybody doubles their vocals, but his is mixed loud. So that's why it sounds like that. And often he's tripled as well, but that's what gives his voice that same, that, that sound. Right. Then I just remember, cause you know, again, I, I thought when I first heard Ozzy Osbourne, I would be terrified. I, sure. I had no interest in it. I remember seeing um, my mom had a people magazine in the bathroom, I was looking through it while I was sitting on the toilet as a little kid. Right. And I remember seeing uh, Ozzy Osbourne speak of the devil and it's just like, like him and he's got this little person standing behind him that's dressed up like a zombie and he's like um, vomiting what looks like guts and stuff. <laughs> and it said speak of the devil and I didn't know the term speak of the devil. So I right. just assumed it meant hey, I'm speaking of the devil. You right, know? <laughs> like and literal. little did I know that the Speak of the Devil album was was a thing where he, it's a thing like, oh, that guy, you right. know? And he had done a, a live record where he did all the Black Sabbath songs and uh, that's what it was called. And so, you know, again, then I just heard it. And it's almost like how when you're a little kid and there's the one kid that everybody's just like, oh man, that kid is... Um, 
he's a bully he's really scary stay away from that guy and then you just end up at the mall alone at the same time as that guy on on one day and you learn that he's the nicest fucking guy ever (laughs) oh Oh, yeah absolutely yeah 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 and you and then all of a sudden you're just like that that guy's not that bad right he's actually really cool we had a great time we went to walgreens and got Reese's peanut butter cups and then went and saw stripes it was great right you know yeah no i absolutely Um, love that but yeah it's uh that that and then you know again motley crew coming out right after that experience uh and again you know you hear the opening of that album and it's in the beginning and it's just this really weird thing and then the first song is shout at the devil and you know so, so just getting all of that straight in my head as a you know 11 12 year old kid one, and and again, I should say that I'm from my my dad was a Church of Christ preacher. Oh, nice. He, he left the church when we were in third, we were in second or third grade. But when I was in second or third grade, but still, I my grandmother was really religious. Of course. So, though I really didn't care about, you know, things like sex or cussing or anything like that, I was still really scared of Satan. Of course, right. right. <laughs> so, like, anytime they would toggle into the world, yeah. you know, of of the devil, then I, you know, I, I would be like, uh, yeah, I don't know if I want anything to do with that. Right. Um, like, I don't know yeah, too much man, about him, but I, I know, uh, stay away. Yeah. yeah. That was, I, I was hooked, though. Yeah, I was, uh, I was definitely hooked after that. I love that. So tease us up for, as we're wrapping up this segment, tease us up for the formation of Bowling for Soup. So we're going to cover that here in this next segment. But what was some of the very first conversation that I know led to the idea of what would eventually become Bowling for Soup? Well, I mean, you know, basically I, I was playing in just a band of friends and I had done that, you know, my whole childhood after that, you know, all of my teens that's all I did. I just played music and it was drums from the age of 13 until I turned uh, 17 or 18. I think it was 17. Basically I was in a band that our bass player could play drums and we had a friend that could play bass, but we could not find a singer. So I was just like, well, I'll try it. And had no intentions ever of being a singer. They say that this is super common, you know. I mean, sure. Steven Tyler started as a drummer. Bill <laughs> Collins, um, Stacy Jones from American Hi-Fi. It, it's just it goes, yeah, you know, um, it goes on and on. Don and Hen- Don Henley is a great one. Um, you know, apparently that's just a thing. And um, so yeah, I started singing, and so then I started playing in in, se- in different bands. I mean, there's a whole story of how I converted from heavy metal to punk rock, which is a whole nother tale, <laughs> which is about as long as the Greg Norman thing that sure. I just told you, so I'll spare you. But I ended up getting into punk rock and um, I started a band with my childhood best friend. Uh, his name was Lance and a kid that we had just met our freshman year, our, uh, freshman year of college. And that band was called Cool Fork. And we were a, um, you know, we were basically the training for what would become Bowling Pursuit. Okay. And at the same time, Lance was playing in a band with Chris and Eric, who also came, uh, you know, would be founding members of Bowling Pursuit. Right. And we used to play this little coffee shop that Chris Burney used to run. And so w- our band was breaking up. 
uh, Shrub was going to move off to go to a different school and our bass player. And so we were recording and Chris Bernie came by and he and I, I didn't really drink at the time and neither did he, but we ended up getting a 12 pack of Zimas <laughs> and um, just yeah. had the best time ever. I mean, just, I've never laughed so hard. I just fell in love with this guy. Yeah. And I was like, Lance, we got to get this dude. We got to get him. Well, I'd already been scouting Eric because I wanted two lead singers. Sure. Originally Bowling for Soup was two lead singers. And um, so, yeah, that was sort of it. I mean, we um, we formed and what we did was we took uh, we took songs from Cool Fork and we took songs from their band and, and made them sound like what Bowling for Soup was going to start to sound like. And, uh, you know, things started moving pretty quick. Had our first show in a month and released our first album three months in. That's fantastic. Well, you're listening to After the Encore. We'll be right back after this. Back to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. And now let's talk about Bowling for Soup. So you've got you've got the group, you've got you've started getting it, forming it together, and then walk me through those early conversations and then to ending up relocating in Denton. How did that process end up working for you? Well, I mean, it, it really was was pretty organic, actually. I mean, we were, we didn't sound like anybody. I mean, there was right. not, I mean, we didn't even know people who had the albums of the bands that we were patterning the band after. Right. I mean, there were not descendants and Green Day fans, you know, in, in Wichita Falls, Texas. I mean, Green Day, the, the Dookie thing had just, had just happened. So, uh, people were catching on. Um, but still, we just weren't the kind of music that people liked. And so we could not get people to come to our shows, but we tried and we tried and we tried. And it's a thing where people still talk about it. Cause we just used to set up like literally at record stores on busy streets <laughs> and in, in the parking lot. Yeah. And, and, and it happens all the time. Like, dude, I saw you guys at the CD warehouse parking lot in Wichita <laughs> falls. Right. And so that's how we started to just kind of help to spread the word. Um, 
But what we did was I um I basically started a fake booking agency and a fake record label. <laughs> and I started going around to other towns about the size of Wichita Falls, Abilene, Texas, yes. San Angelo, Texas, Corpus Christi, Lubbock. Yep. Uh, see, that's the thing is Texas is huge. Yeah. But we really only have two really big cities. Yep. You know, that's it. I mean, San Antonio, I guess. But even San Antonio is only 300,000. So right. it's about the same size as Amarillo. Yeah. I mean, we only have Houston and Dallas that are just massive. Right. That's true. Yeah. And so what I did was I made us a Dallas band, but we weren't. And so I would call these places and they'd be like, oh, my God, this band from Dallas wants to come right. play here. And we got gigs and we developed a following in all of those areas. I love and that. And so... As we had been a band a couple of years and I had started doing that and we were doing, you know, we were also, the other thing that we would do is we could do a cover set and play for four hours with a few breaks. And so we started doing that in areas where we didn't play as an original band. So you could find us in Fort Worth in an area where they have cover bands and you wouldn't ever see a band like us. Right. We were still Bowling for Soup, but we were doing... Elvis songs in the style of the Ramones oh, and, yeah, yeah. And, and Beach Boys in the style of, so um, we could make money doing that. So that started making us some money to where we could go out and play more shows as the other Bowling for Soup. Um, and anyway, we started meeting other bands um, and uh, it happened pretty quickly. It was like uh, we, we started getting to open up for bands in Dallas by letting them come open up for us in Abilene or San Angelo or Lubbock or Amarillo or whatever, because they wanted to get out of town too. They just didn't know how to do it. Sure. Yeah. And we had already done it, yep. but we couldn't get shows in Dallas because we actually weren't from here. Right. Right. And so, um, it happened really quick, man. 96. Um, we played our first show in Denton and within a year, we were killing here yep. and also killing down in Dallas. And it just was the way to where this is where we recorded two albums in 96 and Denton. We, uh, this we we considered our home club here in Denton, our manager who would, would be our manager for the first 13 years lived in Denton. It just was, we were pretty much just here all the time anyway. Right. And so that move happened really, really quickly. And um, we started calling Denton home. And I love that. Denton, Denton took us in. I mean, you know, everybody just welcomed us with open arms because there were lots of different kinds of music here. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, there's a jazz school here. It's the biggest jazz school in the country. And, you know, at the time, you know, Tripping Daisy and Deep Blue Something were, were, were coming out. Todd's of here been right on the now. show before and like, talked about how crazy yeah. and diverse the Denton music scene was when they when Deep Blue Something was yeah. getting caught on. So right to your point, yeah, very so many Absolutely. different Absolutely, it was great. So there was a place for everybody. And where we found our home was opening up for rap rock bands. There was a <laughs> band called Beef Jerky that took us under their wing, <laughs> Hellified Funk Crew. Like all of these rap rock bands loved having us because we weren't direct competition and we were funny. Sure, yeah. So we would entertain their their fans, but it wasn't like they had to come out there and kick the shit out of us because we were up there just doing something completely yes. different. Yes, yes. Um, and so that was really the move and and the direction of you know then becoming, uh, and that really kind of just stayed true for the next few years. It was go play these smaller towns and play a couple of cover shows a month, make enough money 
to where then by like 98, we could schedule a six-month tour and go play to nobody. Right. Literally. Yeah. And, you know, we'd have three or four shows in a week, and on a night we didn't have shows, I'd go into a bar, see if they had a PA, and if they did, I'd be like, do you guys have a band tonight? And they'd be like, no. And I'd go, you want one? We'll, we'll do a show for 50 bucks, five hamburgers, and a case of beer. Right. And more more often than not, they would be like, okay, you want to set up and play? That's fine. Right. And then people in the bar would call their friends, and, you know, we would we would play to 10 people. Yeah. And, uh, you know, make no money on those tours and come home with our tail between our legs because, really, it was like, what are we doing? Right. And then we'd play some crazy, awesome shows here and get reignited and go do it again. I love that. It's very, you know, the, the story that I just love over and over again is this mentality of, like, hustling and grinding and really getting an organic grassroots movement. Because I think what I what I see so often in music, I think it's it's perhaps changing recently, but for a long time it was very, like, you know, I'm just gonna, I, I like, I don't know. I'm thinking of like podcasting, whatever. Um, I had a conversation with someone the other day, but they were like, well, I expect to have hundreds of thousands and millions of thousands, you know, millions of thousands, millions of, of followers and people that are fans. And I'm like, you can't, you got it's all a grind. Like all of this is, a yeah. grind. and I feel like the way to really resonate with people is to be genuine and authentic in yourself. And then they'll like you yeah. for who you are. Um, or they may not, but they'll at least respect what you're doing and appreciate you, and you'll stick in their their mind, you know? Yeah, you have to work hard. Right. You know, I, I will say this, uh, and this is an unpopular opinion, <laughs> but I think Dave Grohl has been wrong before. Yeah. And I'll tell you when and where. Okay. <laughs> There's a very big quote that comes out about from him that says, Get away from the computers, get back in the garage, fucking pay your dues, you know, just you got to get in the band, you get in the garage and practice and stop, you you know, blah, blah, blah. That's unfair. I mean, that's like telling him he can't use an amp with distortion. Right. You know, it's <laughs> yeah, like that's a good point. Uh, computers are just something that we have now. Right. That is a tool that people, kids, I call, you know, young musicians, kids, I call fans, kids, right. kids can use it's a tool right that there's nothing wrong with making a badass album on your computer right. there's nothing wrong with that it's just that you're still gonna have to put in the same amount of work as those guys doing it in the garage you're just gonna have to figure you got to figure out what your path is right. and here's the thing it doesn't make sense for people to get in the van for nine years and go play to nobody like we did right it doesn't make sense I mean we we uh you know we had to make a commitment as to, look, you're not going to go to birthday parties anymore. You're not going to see weddings. You're not going to funerals. You're not going to be there when people graduate. Like that, we can't do that stuff and do this because there's four of us and one crew guy, so that's five people. If each of us has two weekends a year, that's ten weekends we can't play. Right. That's crazy, and we're not going to do that. So we're either going to commit to it or we're not, which, you know, I mentioned Lance earlier. That was really when he was just like, you know, I mean, I love this, but I this isn't what I want to do. Sure, right. And so he left the band, and that's when Gary came in, and and we would we would continue going. But anyway, back to my point. Your your job as an upcoming musician isn't to go out there and play to nobody anymore. And the reason why is because back then people went to see music for discovery. Yes, you would go to a, yes. a club that had five bands. 
three or four of them you've never seen, but you went there and you watched those bands and you hung out and whatever, and you discovered new bands yes. that you'd go see. Yes. That does not exist anymore. No, it doesn't. It's not a thing. Right. Uh, and it was rampant. Yeah. I mean, in, in our, we were so lucky in Dallas because we had seven or eight clubs at any time in Deep Ellum that all had five bands yeah. and you could go around and see all of this insane. I mean, it, Jesus, I think we were all good. Yes. I mean, like it was just crazy how good we all were. Yeah. And that doesn't exist anymore. So right. the idea of like, I just want to go on tour. I just want to go on tour. Well, you know, that's not how you get there. Right. You know, yes. now it's changed. You have to be yeah. able to work yourself on social media. You have to engage your fans. And not only that, attention spans are getting shorter and shorter yeah. and shorter. So you got to figure out a way to keep them coming back every three days every four days every five days just to think of you and put one of your songs on spotify my manager says this and i'll let you go on to the next question because i know i'm talking <laughs> You're way good. too much You're good. but my manager says that being in a band now you are basically a toll booth mm. and what you want is for everybody to drive through that toll booth on their commute every single day and it's the fucking perfect analogy yeah because all you really need is for everybody who likes your band to go, oh, man, you know that one song I need. But your job is to remind them that they have to stop. Yes. So whether it's putting out a picture of you or an old picture and be like, throwback Thursday, right. here's us at the Hoover Dam. Right. <laughs> or here's a delicious pizza that we dropped on the floor or whatever right. it is. That's your job now. Yeah. And, you know, it's quite frankly – a different kind of human being was the one that got in the van than is the one who can do this social media thing. Yeah. So it's a shift in what kind of personalities are going to be successful, right? regardless of how good you are. Yes. And quite frankly, the world is just unfair. Yeah. I've said it before. The best drummer in the world is, has never even played a show. Yes. He just, because he didn't have the right vision or know the right people or meet the right guitar player or whatever. But that some bitch is in his game room playing stuff that like, if we ever discovered the guy, <laughs> right. it'd be crazy. And yeah. it's just like that. No, you know? absolutely. That's so, that's so true because you know, it, trends change and people change with it. And so I think by recognizing what, what is the core universal truth of what made someone successful, which in your case was like the grind and putting yourself out there and making people discover you. All right, well, how is that transferable to today's society? Well, transferable because people are wanting you to interact with them. They want to see what you're doing. They want to feel a part of the process right. in a different way than was previously the case. And so now it's like, okay, how do we lift and shift this mentality and apply it? Yeah. And and I think that's that's what a lot of folks possibly struggle with. I thought it was so interesting though. I want to circle back just for a moment before we get into any Grammy talk. And I want to point out the fact that you said you made up a record label and you made up uh, your, your company or, or all this stuff. And I, I, oh, yeah. one of the things, one of the podcasts I love to listen to is how I built this with Guy Raz and they, and they had um, the guy, oh, I forget his name, but he started Tom's and that was not his first business that he started. And he talked about when he was in college, he recognized they needed money. And so what he did was he saw at freshman orientation when people don't ask, questions about what they're signing up for because they just assume all of these companies have always existed. He and his buddy set up a laundry delivery company and created it and it was fake. And they didn't talk about how long they'd been in existence one day. They didn't talk about all this other stuff. They just said, yes, we will take your yeah. money. We will do your laundry and we will deliver it. This is what we do. And people are like, oh, okay, well, they're here. So they must be, they must be legit. He's like, and then we proved ourselves yeah. and then it worked. And so I love how you were like, 
you know, this is this is the record company. This is who we are. This is who we represent. Yeah. Do you want to uh, this Dallas band to come play in Abilene tonight or whatever? One hundred percent. Yeah, I had a I had an alias. Uh, my name was Jeb Ryan from Fro Records, <laughs> and I would call up and be like, "Hey, this is Jeb Ryan from Fro Records. I got a band coming through there. They're already playing." Uh, in Amarillo and Lubbock, they're going to be on their way to Corpus Christi. I'd love to get them in there to stop in and play a show, um, you know, and, uh, you know, I'm certain that you're, you know, and and it worked every time. That's awesome. Every time. <laughs> and uh, but what was great is, you know, the thing was, is I just like the guy from Tom's. I wasn't selling them a bag of dumb shit. Right. I exactly. mean, we were going to go there and put on a show yes. and everybody there was coming back to see us again next time. Yeah. So. That's the thing is is that I I I lied to get myself in, but I backed it up. And, oh, of course, uh, and, you know, and that was the thing. So, but you got to do that. I yeah. mean, that's all a salesman does. That's right? true. You yeah, know, you're a absolutely. salesman. You you get them to get the product because you know they're going to be happy with it. Right. You just got to make that sell. Exactly. Um. And uh, but yeah, you you know. I love that story. I've yep. never heard that about that Tom's yeah. guy. I know he's a super smart dude. Yeah. But, um, the, another thing that's that a, he that's a great story. another thing he did was he recognized that um, people like from I think it was uh, movie companies were he, he I, I I'm not, it's been a while since I listened to it but he effectively sold the side of buildings for marketing real estate space because nobody was utilizing it and he realized like he could get the rights for that specific space and then sell it sure. to companies to advertise their movies on the side of these apartment buildings and yeah. then he was just like I'm in it. So yeah, it's just, but he knew he could do it and he knew that it was a valuable product and it wasn't like a bag of dog shit that people weren't going to yeah. want. He knew that people would <laughs> yeah. love it. They just, no one had really yeah. thought through it or heard about them or anything else. So I love that. But let's, yeah. let's get into what was it like? I know there's so much we could even cover, but I want to just kind of dip in and out of a few spots. And one of the things I want to, I want to dip into is what was it? I really love to walk through your personal experience of what it was like when that album, which had um, Girl All the Bad Guys Want on it, when that just mm. shot into the stratosphere of of popularity. Yeah. And I be, that was the album that got you nominated for a Grammy. For a Grammy. Is that correct? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. I mean, you kind of can't talk about those two as mutually exclusive because they're kind of sure. Grammy right. and that record are kind of We'll take it one at together. a time. Then. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I mean, basically, we had gotten signed to Jive in 1999. We re we released um, "Let's Do It for Johnny" in 2000. Mm -hmm. It did not do great. However, we got all we we did really well in the UK. Um, we you know we played some very high profile shows. We did some touring over there, and our videos really caught on quickly. Um, and so that got us a second shot. The, the the label was like okay well I mean if if the UK has seen this let's give them another shot it's not like we cost a lot of money so drunk enough to dance to came out uh, girl the bad guys want went, went to rock radio and quite frankly it did not work it mm. it just it was tanking and it was we were pretty much it was gonna be done sure. like we were talking about a new single but quite frankly I'm not sure how much work they would have put into it right you know. Jive had Britney Spears and NSYNC and Backstreet yeah. Boys and R. Kelly and and Fat Joe and yeah. you know all of these artists that were doing these crazy numbers. We were just an experiment to see if they could make it in another genre. Right. And um, but what happened was a guy um named uh David Edgers was the program director of Radio Now in Indianapolis, Indiana. 
And if you're in the music business, you know that there is a time in the early part of December through the early part of January where the entire industry closes down, Mm. uh, mostly because of religious holidays. And so it just does. It closes down and things freeze. And that thing, one of the things that freezes or did back then anyway in 2003 to 2002 was radio playlists. Mm. And this man decided that Girl of the Bad Guys Want was a pop hit. And so he put it into power rotation, which is crazy for a song that isn't proven on a station like that. Right. And he just froze it and left and went on vacation. (laughs) Well, what we're getting to the end of that break. And uh, the 7th of January rolls around in 03. I'm actually in the hospital with my wife uh, at the time, my ex-wife. And she is about to give birth to our baby girl, uh, who is now 17, about to be 18. And they're about to stick the epidural needle in her back, and the phone rings. And the nurse answers the phone, and uh, she hands the phone to me. And I say, this better be good. I'm in the middle of some serious shit, because they were literally about to stick this epidural needle in my wife's back. If you've never seen one of these, they make the husband sit down, because... Other, you're going to pass out if you see this thing going yes. into your life. Yes. It's crazy. I, I've been there. I've been and, there. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So so anyway, my manager goes, dude, I just have to tell you, you're nominated for a Grammy. And I go, cool, thanks, bye. Hung up, right? <laughs> and um, the nurse, uh, my wife is crying. She's like, who would call right now? And I go, it was Jeff. Like, we're in the middle of a, uh, I said, it's not a big deal. Well, what did he want? Why would he call right now? Uh, apparently we got nominated for a Grammy. Oh! God, this is amazing. And the nurse is like, oh my gosh, you got to go to the ceremony. What are you going to wear? And I'm like, guys, focus. We're trying to get a baby out here. Mm-hmm. You know, like everybody's, you know, true story. All of that's true. And I uh, find myself finally getting something to eat later that day. And there's a Dallas Morning News there on the table. And it's Grammy nominations are out. And there we are. And we came back, they, basically they came back from that break, we had got nominated for a Grammy, and Indianapolis had put, th- put that song in power rotation, and everybody followed suit, and the next year of our lives, uh, actually six years of our lives, are a fucking whirlwind. Yeah. But especially that year, and, uh, went, and then you know we followed it up with uh, Punk Rock 101 that didn't yes. do as well, right. but then 1985, huge, so... I mean, we spent a, a solid few years on airplanes yeah. because we were just doing radio shows. And it was literally just like wake up, fly to a place, uh, do promo, play a show the next day, fly to the next place. Um, but yeah, that um, that's the building blocks that went into it that just goes to show you, you know, how much goes into just the luck of a of a hit. Yeah. Know? And especially when you, you know. Uh, we're nobodies, right? You know, we're just these nobody dudes from from Wichita Falls, Denton, Texas. Right. You know, and um, we had a hit. I think it's so interesting. There's two things that that really stuck with me, and one was the um, the in how oh, was it the intelligence of someone who's putting these 
playlist together and can think through the mm. fact that this song belongs with the the power yeah. songs, like the pop, the top songs, yeah. because it blends really well. It meshes really well with the type of people that are already going to listen to that type of music. Yeah. And then you can get mm. some crossover, right, a little bit later. But I think by starting it, like you were saying, kind of in the rock area, it, it, it it gets some people, but not a lot because they're coming to look at, listen for different things. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And the other part was you talked a lot about being a storyteller songwriter and the, the influences that you had, which kind of went into that idea and mentality. And one thing that I consistently, like, it's interesting that you brought that up because when I reflect back on the Bowling for Soup material, it's very, there's so much of a storytelling mentality throughout the yeah. songs that I realize that I don't always see with, with similar, with other groups in the genre, um, in quite the same way as I do with Bowling for Soup. So I think it's interesting that you yeah. tie that through. What was the, um, maybe working back even a little bit, um, writing that song, what was your mentality? What was it like for you to, to write what, you know, we know became a hit, but what was it like when you were yeah. putting pen to paper? I mean, a another fantastically long tale. <laughs> I'll try to shorten it for you. But, uh, you know, uh, quite frankly, uh, we had gone to Atlanta, Georgia to do this album. First time we've ever done a record outside of just being home. First time working with an outside producer. Um, and we went to go do this record with Butch Walker, who um, is an incredibly world-renowned producer now. But at the time was just coming off of being in three bands that all had record deals and um you know he he says it in his own songs you know marvelous three was his last one kind of a one-hit wonder kind of thing and was getting really into more of the producing thing and you know we were kind of one of the first major label things that he had and he was the first producer that we had worked with it was awesome i mean we went down to atlanta and and did that so um, but I went in a day or two early to just meet him and, and get acquainted and, and start to get ready to do this thing. And we just started talking about writing a song. But, uh, you know, and what was popular back then was, uh, again, what we called mad at, mad at your dad music. Right. Which the line actually makes it into the song. Yep. Singers who are mad at their dad. Right. And um, we were going to write a song about that. And as we start to kind of get close to finishing the songs that I had already sent him, the songs that we had already written, that I had already written, um, he goes, hey, I've got an idea. It's called Girl the Bad Guys Want. And, you know, here is the this opening riff that I thought we and I heard the right. Oh, shit. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, fuck it, let's do it. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it, it, it um, that was and that. And then so that song. We 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 kind of the verses were written as we were recording it. Oh, that's and literally, awesome! Literally, like we would come up with things like um, you know racetrack season pass and things like that, <laughs> where we would be laughing so hard that like it would take you know it'd take fifteen twenty minutes to just get the line down yeah. because uh, you know it, it, every single line would make us laugh. Right. So, um, you know, just such a cool experience. My first time ever to co-write with somebody and it ended up being a hit. So obviously I kind of got addicted to that. Right. I, I love writing with other people. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I mean, you know, and and it, it, the funny thing is, is what, what it taught me was is I don't, I guess as a writer, I just can't tell. I don't know which ones are hits. Sure. I, I really don't. I it, Because 
everybody would hear that song and just be like undeniable, like even my friends or whatever, like, holy shit, right. that's a freaking hit. And I'd be like, okay, but these other songs are good too. Right. You know, like there's, you know, there's, there's 15 songs on this album. Right. And, uh, you know, but, uh, and and it's not it's not a thing where it's like my ego. It's just I literally sure. just can't hear it because yeah. I think they're all good. Right. Um, you know, uh, but yeah, so that song comes out and we got to go make a make a really cool video for it. And, um, you know, here's here's one thing, you know, I'm sure you get lots of people on here talking shit about labels. I'm not a, <laughs> I'm not jaded. I, I actually think that there's bands that need labels. And I think that there's bands that don't. Sure. But there are certain things that labels will do sometimes where you're just like, well, that was fucking smart. And one of them for our our Girl of the Bad Guys Want video, actually, um, that video was made and done, but it didn't have a girl in it. And it was actually the president of the label who goes, ah, there has to be some sort of girl right. element. Can they figure something out? And then we came up with the girl looking, watching the video through the window yeah. and all of that and then walking away. Um but uh, which is really, really smart yep. because she's she people ask us about her all the time. Right. And uh, so visually, it just helped the story make sense yep. instead of us just, you know, spoofing stained right. and limp biscuit. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, again, I, I think, you know, there's there's been a few of those. And, you know, there's a few things that the label had us do that I regret. Uh, but there's there's just as many things where I was like, okay, yeah, that was smart. Yeah, I'm glad they told us to do that. Right. <laughs> well, I think you always yeah. got to give credit. Of where course, credit is due, of course. Man, no, you know? I think I think there's so many situations. One of the things you know that I think it's so prevalent is like, you know, um, I don't know. So how, how do I want to put this? It's like good and bad things happen all the time to you. And I think this quote that I heard also from somebody on um, how I built this, they talked about, they said, everybody, this is what they said. They said, everybody gets little pieces of luck every single day uh, in the form of either advice or like you get the green light or whatever, right? Big and little all the, all the time. It said the successful people are the people who are able to recognize the luck that they're getting and then apply it towards the next thing they're doing. So you're just kind of sure. rolling over the luck. It's like, oh, I made the screen light. I'm five minutes faster to the recording session. Now I can spend five extra minutes preparing for that or whatever, right? And then it just, sure. it's just yeah. a kind of a state of mind which allows you to kind of be open to anything that happens. And so as far as like advice, whenever you get like good and bad things that happen to you, I think it's, it's important. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a sucky situation and it, it's really shitty, it's like, okay, well, here's something that I learned and that I can improve upon. And now right. I know for the next situation and then the next situation comes along, you apply what you've learned and then something amazing happens as a result. So that's, yeah. it's easy to wallow, I think, in the the bad and and only yes. hype up the good. But I think as much as, as much as I hate it and I think we all hate shitty things happening, recognizing why they happened, what role that we played in it and how we can use it empowers us mm. to be ready for the next the next good thing in that way. Yeah, no, totally. I agree. I think, um, you know, there's two things about that, you know, but the main one is, uh, Gary talks about this a lot. My drummer is small victories. Yes. And they can be like really small. Right. I mean, they can be like, I only press snooze once. Right. Seven times. You <laughs> Praise know, the like, Lord. <laughs> that's okay to start your day like that. I'm like, fuck yeah, man. This is you know, and like you said, making a green light, you know, right. and, and getting a place five minutes early instead of 10 minutes late, mm -hmm. you know, which is, you know, more my speed. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. And again, I, I am, um, I'm not a joke stealer. I'm a joke creditor. Right. So if somebody says something funny, I'll tell the story, 
but I don't claim that joke. Right. I, I, you still get the laugh, but you can tell people, ah, but that's not my joke. You know, that's somebody else's exactly. joke. And the same is true with, uh, you know, like you said, with guidance. I, I think a yes. lot, there's a lot of artists out there that don't like to give credit to their manager or their label or this. And it's just like, you know, I mean, I, I, th I think sometimes just acting like you did everything on your own makes it a little bit less exciting to me. Yeah, you know? like I, definitely. I think it's kind of cool that, you know, you were doing this and then somebody came in and was like, yeah, but this, and you're like, oh, shit, like that's cool, you right. know, rather than it, yeah. just like, oh, yeah, everybody around me is an idiot. <laughs> and I did all this. You know? Well, and it's relatable um, too. People can relate to being part of a team and being part of this community that rises together and learns together and helps each other. People can't relate sure. to like an overnight sensation that is solo and is Superman, right? I mean, that's not sure. That's not, I mean, it's cool, but like I can't relate to that, you know? <laughs> right. 100%. Yeah. And even the funny thing about the overnight sensation too is what goes into keeping them successful. Yes most of the time has very little to do with that person, mm -hmm. um, you know. But, hey, you know, it is what it is. I, I just think uh, it takes a village, and that's in work. And, you know, look, I'm the guy in Bowling for Soup that everybody wants to talk to, you know, and uh, I get credit for the songs and all of this shit. But I'm not in any way under the impression that I could have done this without the other three Of course, dudes. absolutely. Because everybody, we are the sum of our parts. Yes. And everybody has their role. Yes. And uh, though some of their, I mean, Chris Burney's role is literally to just show up and play the show. That's all <laughs> he has to do. Right. But it's freaking vital. Yes. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I heard um, growing up in the theater world, something uh, that our tech director uh, at the time when I was a freshman used to love to say is, Act without with he said he said without tech without techies actors are just cold naked people on the floor <laughs> right. because there's no one to sure. light them clothe them sound them yeah. anything and so I was like yeah. that's a helpful reminder that it's it's a village and we're all in this together yeah so it's the reason my crew guys uh, for t all 26 years get treated just like the band does. yeah that's uh, awesome you know, if we get something they get it um, we ride in a, some sort of a Nice SUV, they do too. That's fucking you know, awesome. It's, it's yeah, the, it's the um, that's it. There's there's ten of us. They're like, oh, well, there's four band guys. No, there's ten of us. Right. That's how many of this thing that you're wanting to do that you're gonna have to do. I love that. And that includes shoes. Yep. You know, I absolutely love that. Well, you're <laughs> you're listening to After the Encore. I'll be right back after this. Sure. 
You're listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and we are back. And now, you know, something that I forgot to bring up on the last segment and I wanted to bring up now. I listen. I mean, I was firmly into that, like kind of pop punk, whatever you want to classify it. Period. I had Bowling for Soup albums, Good Charlotte, Blink One Eighty Two, Simple Plan, um, Hawk Nelson as well on the Christian music side, and then um, Christian music, you know, whatever. Um, and then, so I was firmly entrenched in it. And the one thing that I say is, every time I would listen to Bowling for Soup, and I just felt like in like a party mood. Like I was excited. I was upbeat. I was good to go. And not that I didn't with the other stuff, but the other stuff I listened to in different moods because that's how I organized my music. But when I was like amping up and getting ready to go, it was Bowling for Soup was my my, uh, disc of choice, CD of choice. So I just think it plays into that kind of mentality that you're talking about, about groups would bring you in for a party, you know? And and in fact, I even saw... Blink-182 and Cypress Hill on a, on tour together, which seemed very odd at the time. But then I realized that, like, yeah. one hyped up the other. I forget. I Blink closed. So Cypress, I didn't know anything about them. But I was, like, amped up and ready to go by the time they were done because yeah. it was just fun. And then Blink came and, yeah. like, tore the house down. So I like that idea of, like, different types of musical acts who are kind of getting the party going for the other group. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I so two things on that. I mean, I, I've always been a a firm believer in you know good music is good music mm-hmm. and so when picking support bands I, I it you don't have to be in our genre sure. for me to want to take you out that's the first thing uh, I do like you to bring forth a certain kind of vibe right. so that that makes sense Cypress Hill before Blink 182 to me would 100% make sense right. you know um I used to take MC Lars okay, on the road sure. all the time yeah. and he's you know and uh you know, I, I loved having him on because it set such a cool tone for us um, to be there. You know, um, and then, you know, but but the thing about, you know, you putting in a CD when you're in a certain mood, and, and, and that was always our thing, is that Bowling for Soup is that band you want to put on when you've had a shitty day <laughs> and you don't want to have a shitty day anymore. Right, you know? yes, and, yes. You know, as, as we started to get into pop punk... Um, really started to sort of blur the lines or whatever with, you know, Blink changing directions and some 41 changing directions. Some 41, yeah. So many of them, uh, which is great. And again, I like all of all of their stuff. Me too. And I yeah. think those were the bands to do it. Yes. Like if you're going to expand, these are the kind of, and you mentioned Boxcar Racer yep. earlier or whatever like right. that. That's the thing. Like those are the dudes to do it. Bowling for Soup really just isn't that band. Sure. We're not the guys to put out some sort of a political thing right. or something, you know, that is more serious musically or whatever. Just because when you listen to us, you want to just not overthink it yeah. and just have a good time. And also, I think there's an aspect to listening to us and it just sort of feels like you're hanging out with your bros. Yes. You know, it's just like, hey, I'm yes. just hanging out with my dudes. Yes. They just happen to be singing songs. Right. <laughs> I love that. And we've prided ourselves on that. You know, I think, again, I think there's some bands that they change course and it's, you know, it's fucking awesome. And I think everybody should do it. I think there's other bands like Bad Religion and No Effects and Bowling for Soup that, like, if you bought one of our albums and we didn't sound the same as the last one, you'd be like, oh, okay, well, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the reason I like you. Right, right. (laughs) You know, like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, thus, 
you know, critically, we don't really get shit anymore because we've been, you know, we've got over, we, we got 20 something albums yeah, and we've been together 26 years. It's really hard to write a bad review on us right. because really, what is it that you hate? I mean, we've shown the longevity. Yes. But, you know, uh, halfway through this ride, we definitely used to get the, well, it's just more of the same from these guys. And, you know, that they've uh, certainly not grown musically. <laughs> they've just grown outwardly, you know, and things like that. Right. But uh, actually, nobody was fucking smart enough to come up with actually, that. Actually, that would have been good. Myself. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I think, I think though, it's like um, – Oh, I was I was having this conversation the other day with somebody. I was like, you know, sometimes I think it's really great to see an artist or a group put out some kind of like, I don't want to call it experimental music, but just maybe a next iteration. I think that's great. And there's different people that it works for. But I, I always go back to um, my biggest complaint. I was a huge John Mayer fan. I guess still am, but John Mayer mm -hmm. fan. And I felt like the peak for me, the peak of my fandom was when you released Continuum, which had gravity on it and had these like really bluesy, soulful songs. And then, it, right. and then they got like a little bit different, each new version. And so I always said, I just wanted John to be like single and lonely and write me good music for the rest of all yeah, time. Right. And like, that's not a great yeah. headspace for him to be in, I'm sure. But, but I, that's a big thing, right? Right. Yeah. You know, Blue, you know, Blue October, yes. right? And then oh. it's like, he fucking wrote oh. a happy record and half of his family right. were just like, what the fuck is this? You know? Of course, they all came back because yeah. that's what they do. But right. you know, he got so much shit for not being sad anymore. And it's like, right. give the guy a break, dude. I mean, like he came off heroin and his fucking ex-wife yeah. left with his kid and shit. You know, like he, the guy right. has been through enough. Yeah. <laughs> Let him be happy. Right, you know? exactly. But I think I think it is something where it's like there are some artists where you want that consistency because you because so I, this is the way I want to say it is it's not so I think from a music, I think, I think arguably sometimes critics get a little, um, uh, wrapped up in their own ego. Sometimes some people, sometimes, um, sure, and, agreed. and so that's when they're like, Oh, there's just more of the same, just more of the same. But I think when you are a successful group and you can show such depth in the music while maintaining the same consistency and continuing to mm -hmm. grow and evolve the fan base, that's not, yeah. that's not, copy pasting your record that is still being creative and thinking of new mm. ways to reach people while still maintaining the universal truth of the group. And I think some people to maintain their universal truth need to grow and change the sound. But yeah, some people it's sure. like, I don't need to change the sound. That's the core. I'm still reaching people. This is what, how I'm doing it. And it's just a different interpretation of growth. I think that people aren't grasping. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, again, I think, you know, I, I like the journey of Sum Forty One. You know, mm -hmm. I like that. You know, we took we were on tour with them before that before all of them could uh, drink legally except Derek, <laughs> and you know they were snotty little shits, and that's that's what their music <laughs> right. was at the time. Right. And then now they're just not like that. They're yes. fucking grown men and their dads, yep. and they're you know they have some shit to say, and you know quite frankly they do it, and they like metal. Yeah. You know, and that's that's their thing. You know, and let's you know I I realize that green that that. You know, Billy doesn't like to put himself in the pop punk genre, but quite frankly, he, he can't. It, it's he it just fucking is. Right. And you know, they've re recreated their band four times, yeah. and every time it's been awesome. Yes. Like I fucking love Warning. I think yes. that album is so good. Yes. You know, and then and then the first time I saw American Idiot, we were on Warp Tour, and I was like, holy right. shit, this is next level. You know, <laughs> and then so I mean, they just know what they're doing when they decide to recreate themselves. Absolutely. You know, we just fucking. 
you know, change our shirt and <laughs> fucking write songs that are, you know, better right. than, right. you know, I love than, that. than what we, what we used to write. And, and, you know, I mean, our days of hits are, are over. It's, 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 you know, it's a different climate out there right. and it's not something that I even try to do. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, man, I, I, uh, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, there's a time and place for, all things to expand yes. and change and and uh and, and and as you said you know that, that i think you put it into really good words it's not that we're we're copy and pasting it's not like bands like us are it's right. not you know all american rejects and simple plan and simple plan have kind of gone off and tried to experiment a little bit sure. musically and try to reel it back in you know um yeah, I just I think we grow as songwriters and musicians and you know as people and and this is just the format in which we choose to yes. to write it. it, you know, it's not like a fucking journalist changes the way they speak, right? You know, yes. or like, yes, you know yes. what I mean? Yes, like exactly. You know, I, you know it's it's uh, that's just one of those things. Yeah, but, no, yeah, I love man, that. That's a that's a great way to put it. And I, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about in this segment was current projects, current work, and then how to continue to stay relevant over the years. And I definitely think we touched, we covered that aspect. I'd love to know, kind of fast forwarding, because I think. We're at a point now, like you said, you're not trying to write like, how is this going to get top airplay? Because just the whole like climate mm. and dynamic has changed. But I think you've yeah. got such such a fan base. You talk about being one of the top 10 fan bases, right? You have such yeah. a fan base that's like, we're here for you. Let's go. It doesn't matter yeah. anything else. So I think in that way, how did you think about, because I know you all just finished uh, working on an album in the Poconos um, just did. recently. Yeah. So how do you... Yes. How do you Maybe this is how I want to ask it. With there being so many albums, when you approach a current a project like the one you just finished rapping, how do you approach it from a, from a songwriter and uh, musician mentality of what's the next iteration of our sound? Mm -hmm. So how did you approach this current record? And maybe we can kind of work back from there. Current one, I I kind of reeled it back in. I mean, we we the funny thing about this the last twenty minutes of us talking is I. <laughs> talked about how we didn't really expand <laughs> but we kind of did right. i mean you know we went from two guitars bass and drums on you know uh on you know our first four records to working with butch on you know or five actually working with butch on drunk enough to dance and starting to have there was b3 and piano on things and things like that and kind of going to the next level on the next one the next level on that and then bloop bloops and bleep blops and stuff on on the great burrito extortion case and then just taking it to the next level on sorry for partying and tons of production and vocals and reeling it back in and over the next couple um this one i i just kind of wanted to re-simplify mm. Um, I, I wanted to do, I, I kind of liked the idea of two guitars, bass and a drums, bass and drums. And some of those ear candy things, you know, being in there with, with, you know, organ and things like that. But really there are things that you don't hear, you feel, right. um, those are texture things. So, um, I simplified quite a bit. You, you know, I think people are going to be surprised at sort of just like the simple I, punk rock for lack of a better word yeah. um songs on there and then um you know but there's also some substance i mean there th this one i i think i just couldn't help it in the current climate yeah. to at least address that there's so many shitty people in the world and that i think Fair. That it's you know i'm not a political person right and i'm not saying either even which side i'm on 
uh, I just think people are mean. Yeah. And, and yeah. I, and, and I think that we've gotten to, to a point where it's just like, I, it's just common sense to me, man. We're, we're all human beings and we're all in this together. And you know, I fucking said it yep. on this record and, um, and I'm, and I fucking call out people and, um, I, I I'll back it up. Yeah, you know I I you know but but then there's other songs on here that are just so silly. You're just like, oh my god, these guys. Yeah, you know, whatever. So <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I absolutely love that, and I think I think it's so true. You know, you bring up something that I'm constantly thinking of is like, how can I as an individual person leave the world better than I found it? And it's like, let's mm. just have a conversation. To no, now I do want to say this. I, I brought this up before, and I, I put this qualifier on it, and that I understand that from where I sit, both in the world and as a individual person, um, as a white man, I do have certain privileges where I'm allowed to say, Hey, let's sit down and talk. And not everybody, not everybody has those, those privileges in different ways. So, Mm -hmm. so it's my job to say, Hey, let's talk. Let's work through these, these talking points and let me see myself in you. Let you see yourself in me. Let's break bread Mm -hmm. and let's figure out how we can find some common ground because I think a lot of things are getting misrepresented of what people are trying to say and then our natural human inclination is to be defensive and to go into fight or flight mode and i don't necessarily believe that that is that there is a message of division that people are always trying to say i think it gets manipulated and repackaged and and then sent out in bite-sized form which is harmful for everyone and so i do love the idea of like hey let's just all stop being shitty Let's talk yes. about it. Let's work together because we we still have to live with each other. Somebody brought it up so eloquently um, that I heard the other day. It said, regardless of what happens in November, we still have to live with each other. So let's yeah. just figure out the best way to do that instead of alienating the other 50% or 40% or whatever, you know, percent of the country right. at the at the end of it all. Because it's like, I don't. I just, oh, I could go on and on, but I just feel so well, strongly I think that, about that. I think that, you know, obviously this is a different topic. Sure. But it, it, we're, we're getting ourselves in a rabbit hole, but, you know, <laughs> no. I, I don't mind. Uh, you know, I, you know I, I think people's, especially Midwestern dudes, mm-hmm. don't want to fucking admit that they've got privilege because that, you know, to them seems like they... Um, have advantages that people don't have it. They don't want to, you know, sure. they don't want to admit that. Sure, you know, sure. But Elizabeth Perkins, who is one of the most beautiful actresses and human beings on the planet, uh, put this out the other day. Um, if you've never had a Supreme Court case decide if you have the same rights as others, you have privilege. Mm. And I was like, damn, fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's like, well said. Okie dokie. Yep. You know, I mean, there, there. I mean, it, that's pretty much as simple as it gets. You know, yeah. it's like, it's like the mask debate. It's like, if I'm standing next to you and I sneeze, want me wearing a mask or no? Right. You know, just yeah. you know who, you know. Yeah. I, okay, maybe they don't fucking um do what everybody thinks they're doing or whatever, but you know. Spit comes out, right? You know, do you want that on you? You know, kind of thing. Yeah, no, exactly. But, you know, I, I just think obviously we got way off topic. No. I, I just think that people need to be kind. Yes, and, you know, I think it's a. This is a hard time to be alive. Yeah, it's, it's it. Maybe it's not hard for everybody. Uh, it's an interesting time. It's a wacky time. Right. You know, my children. Each of the three of them have their own. Uh, you know, battles and struggles through all of all of this insanity. Yep. Um, as does my wife, and then you know my 
parents and my brother and my friends and, you know, and Jesus Christ, all of my friends are in the entertainment industry, right. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know what, man? I mean, we're alive and we're here and, and we just got to make the best of it. And I think that starts small by just, absolutely, man, you know, just be a nice person. Right. You know, they're just, they're, it's, it's not that hard. Right. And honestly, just because you don't agree with somebody, does it really affect your life that much that that person believes something different? Than you? Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Is no, 100%. it that big of a deal? Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yeah, tying it back into the music, because that's one of the things I love to do. I love that you were able to to really address that in, in, in the album and, and just talk about the fact that, hey, let's be kind there's a lot yeah. of shitty things going on. Let's let's find a way to come together. And the fact that you're putting out in song, you know, is a yeah. way for people to really relate to it because people will listen to to stuff. How how do I want to put this? They will listen to music, right? When they don't want to hear, when they don't want to scroll through social media or they don't want to hear somebody across from them, oh, they'll sure. listen to music and then it's, okay, now it's, it's rattling around in my brain and sticking yeah. with me as I go. And you know what? It's, I'm going to remember that the next time I want, I want to be shitty, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be shitty. Yeah. Like, you know, and it, it resonates sure. with people. And so I think, I think that's the unique, unique situation or unique platform, I guess that that you have as, as an artist. I was even talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, I'm big Bob Dylan fan. And so I was listening to, um, the times they are changing came on. Right. And I always listen to that. Like, yeah, it is crazy, but man, some of the lyrics really got me in how relatable they were with what's going on. And so I just went, man, this is a good reminder for me to like, things are changing. Let's do the best we can to be the best we can. And, mm. and, and let's find a way to forge a new path together. Because that's that's yeah. what's gonna help us out, but yeah, that I agree. Well, I promise I don't get too crazy on uh, <laughs> no, on all of that good. stuff on the new record. If you're a Bowling for Soup fan, you you'll like the way that I that I approach it. Um, but <laughs> I love yeah, that. man, I'm uh, we're hoping to get that out um, spring. So that's we'll, awesome. Yeah. I know that there's so there's so much else I could go on and on and on about, but I know as we're starting to wrap near the end of the segment, I do want to ask you a couple more questions. So one of the okay. one one of the things I want to know is from your perspective, what has been, what is a story that you have about a song or an album that you that really meant a lot to you or was interesting to you in a specific way that folks don't typically talk about or cover? Obviously, we talked about girl the bad guys want the grammy nomination and we're talking about the current project but what's a story that you have associated with either a song or an album that you don't feel people know that much about well i mean i think there's quite a few of those i mean you know and and i mean i'm such an open book i talk about it a lot i think i just like to bring light to one uh and because uh i don't bring the room down i don't bring the room up but right. you know one of the first celebrities we lost to COVID-19 was Adam Schlesinger of Fountains of Wayne. And yes. Adam was a good friend of mine. Um, and many people don't know that. So most people know that Bowling for Soup gets credit for the song Stacy's Mom. Right. We, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing. It's this ongoing thing that we've tried to trace where that would have started back. Um, but for some reason for years and years and years and still to this day every, just the normal just music fan person thinks that Stacy's mom is by Bowling for Soup I, when, when <laughs> we say 
when we say, yeah, I'm in a band called Bowling for Soup. Oh, Stacy's mom. No, nineteen. Fountains of Wayne. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> no. Fountains of Wayne. Yeah, I, I had to, um, when so, I bought that album, I, I went and I was like, can I get the group that sings Stacy's mom? I think it's Bowling for Soup. And the record guy looked at me like, it's Fountains of Wayne, bro. Here's your CD. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> See, it's just been But I discovered like Fountains forever, of Wayne. It's so good. Anyways. Anyway, uh, but what people don't know is that uh, he and I actually wrote the song "High School Never Ends" together. Oh, whoa! And, uh, so I had uh, I had actually met him, and we had written a couple of songs together um, back in the uh, you know, and um, we got together to write for the Great Burrito Extortion Case, and um, yeah, I mean, he uh, it was it was you know we we were fast friends and had a great time but you know that song i had had that term or just that phrase high school never ends written down in my uh, in my notebook for years and uh my favorite thing that came out of that session was he i was still writing in this leather bound you know notebook and he said uh you're not writing on your computer and i go no i'm not really you know i don't know really like to type you know and he goes okay we're gonna fix that today and <laughs> And uh, so he goes, today we're just going to write on our computers because watch, we can look at it visually and we can erase and we can put this over here and yada, yada. And so, uh, yeah, he, he, he trained me to write my lyrics on my computer that day. And it's funny, I, I think about it all the time, like how it'd be sitting in a room with him now writing on our phones because <laughs> that's pretty much how it goes right. these days. But yeah, he and I, um, he, so basically, um, he wanted to write a song about tabloids, and I was just like, "Man, let's! I want to write a song called High School Never Ends.' Let's combine the two." Yeah, and uh, that's how that whole thing. So Reese Witherspoon, she's the prom queen, and all of those references um, is that tabloid tie-in. Uh, how did Mary Kate lose all that weight? Right. And uh, so how high school is sort of similar to that whole thing. Yeah, and um, yeah, but that's that's a little. Little known, little. T I mean, people know it's out there. Right. I don't tiptoe around it, but uh, I just don't think that it gets talked about that much. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I love that. All right. Well, uh, as we're ending the segment here, if people want to follow you and see what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? You can find me anywhere, J A R E T 2113. I'm actually about to launch my new website, jarrettreddick.com, that'll have all of my stuff, but just find me on Twitter. Instagram, um, I have an artist page on Facebook. All of it's J A R E T two one one three. I just got on TikTok and it's just Jarrett Reddick. Um, and uh, but you know, for all things bowling for soup, go to bowlingforsoup.com. And um, yeah, I if you're actually you're listening to this uh, before November seventh, we have a full band live stream coming up. So make sure that you tune into that, and uh, we will be going back to the UK. In May, fingers crossed, right. everything stays. Let's think positive, guys. Yes. <laughs> and uh, but yeah, man, that's me. I love it. I, oh, and also, obviously, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you guys are podcast listeners, yes. so check out Rockstar yes, Dad absolutely. Show, uh, which I do with Gary. We have um, this week on the show. We have Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick and both of his grown musical sons that both have kids as well. Oh, that's awesome! Uh, for a full hour episode, and um, Scott Ian of Anthrax coming up. And uh, also, Jarrett Goes to the Movies just started season three, and uh, we are on fire. We just did Forrest Gump and Dumb and Dumber. So um, we just watch a movie and talk about it for an hour or two. So and you did an amazing live event with um, Jason David Frank for the Power Rangers, which I was totally we, geeking out about. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, we did. So we do these live ones, and we've had Anthony Michael Hall twice, and... Um, 
uh, Bam Margera, and uh, but yes, recently Jason David Frank, who uh, who you know he and I hit it off. We had a really great time. Got to watch the Power Rangers movie, and he didn't hold back. He, y'all, if you're a Power Rangers fan, go check that episode out. It's out there. Uh, Jarrett goes to the movies, and um, it's uh, it's really cool. You get to hear him like actually talking you through the movie, and he's got some really funny stories about That's it. That's fucking awesome. I love that. Absolutely incredible. All right. Well, last question here. If people, uh, if someone is listening and they want to break into the music industry, what is a piece of advice or a mantra that you have for yourself that you would like to impart on them? Well, I used to say don't suck. <laughs> um, but I realized that that, you know, is sort of like my whole thing of like, okay, that's you blowing the question off. Right. Um <laughs> You know, this is the thing. I think, honestly, not only just in music, really in everything, and I don't mean this to be cliche, just enjoy what you do. Mm. I mean, you know, it's I, I know a lot of musicians who are miserable. And, you know, I know a lot of dental assistants that are miserable. And it's like, there's just, life is really short, man. Yeah. And you just, you know, if you're miserable, then find other people to play with or a different path. Right. Um, but, you know, it's um, it's just not an easy industry. It's just not. If you're making the decision to try to do something in the music business, you need to be, you know, happy right. doing it for not very much money and not getting a lot of... Um, you know, uh, just a lot of respect or applause or things like right. that. It's just that shit just isn't easy to come by. Right. You need to do it because you love it. Mm. And if you love it, then do it and be happy about it. You know, that's awesome. So, um, but yeah, I, I just think, um, you know, I tell my kids, I mean, I've got a little girl who's uh, about to graduate from high school here in a couple of months and she doesn't know what she wants to do. And I'm like, you don't have to know what you want right. to do. Who gives a shit? Yeah. Go try 15 things. Yep. It doesn't matter. Exactly. Like, if you start your career at 21, what's the difference if you start your career at 43? Right. It doesn't matter. Right. You made it to 43 and started your career. Exactly. Just, you know, you live a happy life. Definitely. So. I love that. That's the advice I could leave you with. I absolutely love that. Well, Jared, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's an absolute delight. I really appreciate Joe, it. Joe, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. It's been, been a lot of fun. I, again, I apologize for the uh, scheduling stuff, but I'm <laughs> glad we finally got to make it happen. <laughs> me too. Well, listeners, you are listening to After the Encore. I'm your host, Joe Shaw, and here to play us out one last time is Bowling for Soup. Get her.
podcast is powered by Roberts Media Group, your resource for podcast development. For more programming and advertising opportunities, please visit us at robertsmediagroup.co.